and I really like the odd and unusual. What is it about the odd and unusual that draws you? Uh, the odd and unusual things, I think all of us like something that's not quite mainstream, that's not quite uh, mundane, and everybody knows this. The odd and unusual is you, you walk around and you're the one who notices this is out of place. That's not the way people say it is. And, uh, and, and I love that. Pacific Northwest author and historian Jeff Davis writes about all sorts of topics, military history, Bigfoot, and ghosts. He even hosts spirit walks every October. And here we are at his gravestone. But one of his favorite things to research is cemeteries. He says the headstones can teach us so much about different cultures and societies throughout time. There are rich people buried in this cemetery. Whenever I do go to cemeteries, there are poor people buried in the cemetery. All I can see on a lot of them is the name, the dates, and sometimes a little motto, beloved father, uh, loving mother. It's kind of interesting. Death is the great equalizer. I really wish that I had the ability to actually touch these stones and learn a lot more, learn everything about this person, because the stones do talk to us. He is remembered and not forgotten. I wish they could just tell us more. One of his favorites is the Old City Cemetery in Vancouver, Washington. Established in 1867, it's believed to be one of the city's oldest cemeteries. It contains more than 8,000 plots, including the grave of the first person in the county to be legally hanged. Modern readers would say this has to be fiction, but no, no, it's, it's absolutely true. I'm Ashley Korslin, and this is Wicked West. Episode 2, The Hanging Holiday. In the 1820s, as explorers and fur traders moved out to the American West in search of land and resources, the London-based Hudson's Bay Company established Fort Vancouver on the north bank of the Columbia River. It served as the company's headquarters for fur trading operations west of the Rocky Mountains. Employees considered upper class lived inside the fort with their families. Those considered lower class lived outside the fort in small cabins. The influx of people led the Hudson's Bay Company to establish a cemetery to bury the deceased. It was for employees and their relatives, and also American Indians, settlers from the Oregon Trail, and Canadian fur trappers. But after the Oregon Treaty of 1846, Fort Vancouver and the land around it became United States territory. When the U.S. Army arrived in 1849, the Hudson's Bay Company abandoned its holdings over a period of several years. The Army gradually took over the land, including the buildings within Fort Vancouver. As it stationed more troops there, the Army found a need for more land for infrastructure. So it deconsecrated the Hudson's Bay Pioneer Cemetery, exhumed the bodies, and reinterred the remains in other cemeteries. When the Army in the 1880s moved their cemetery, uh, they actually took out ads in the newspapers telling civilians, if you had a relative buried in our cemetery, you've got to move them. Otherwise, we're going to move them too. 
And there are newspaper accounts where people came from as far away as Seattle to remove the bodies of parents and aunts and uncles. Many of those remains were reinterred at the Old City Cemetery, which had been established on land donated to the city. In the 19th century, oftentimes, landowners with large plots would donate a few parcels to local governments to be used as cemeteries. Or fraternal groups and churches would purchase and donate the land. And the cemeteries would often be subdivided into quadrants. For instance, the Old City Cemetery in Vancouver actually has a quarter that we know as the Masonic Quarter because uh, Masonic lodges were very important here in Vancouver in those 1800s years. They initially buried him in an unmarked grave in what's known as the Potter's Field. Many cemeteries also included a section known as a Potter's Field, where the indigent, poor, or unknown were laid to rest. And that's where a man named Edward Gallagher was buried. You can find his headstone at the Old City Cemetery. It reads, died by legal hanging, July 11th, 1890, 27 years old. Edward Gallagher is the only man ever hanged legally in Clark County. Dubbed the Hanging Holiday of 1890. I don't know if you call it a claim to fame or what. Gallagher's story has long fascinated historians like Jeff Davis. We don't know very much about Gallagher uh, because he was kind of a drifter in the 1870s, 80s, 90s. Uh, I think he would have been an itinerant worker, uh, roused about, handyman. The story takes us back to the fall of 1889. There were a lot of people in November uh, that year uh, along the Columbia River fishing, the, the, the fall fish run. So it was not unusual to have people uh, who, who didn't seem to have any visible means of support uh, making a living any way they could. A deputy had spotted Gallagher along with another man near the home of a local farmer named Louis Marr. And according to some witnesses, they were camping out there and even the sheriff or one of the deputies had gone to check up on them and they said, oh, we're here fishing, we're here for the fishing. Not long after, friends went to check on Marr after not seeing him around for a while. What they found was horrendous. Marr had been brutally murdered in a field on his property. He had been bludgeoned with some sharp object and uh, shot with either a, a rifle or a handgun and also shot with a shotgun. It's according to some people, the forensics being what it was in the day, uh, they speculated that somebody came up behind him, hit him, knocked him to the ground, shot him and killed him. And then to try and make it look like an accident, they took Mars shotgun and shot him with it as a second time to try and mask that. Mars home had also been ransacked. Authorities believed somebody targeted him for the cash that he was known to stash around his farmhouse. They hadn't quite torn it apart, but they ended up finding that uh, there was hundreds and hundreds of dollars stashed in various places, various nooks and crannies in the house. Uh, some of it was gone. So they went looking for likely suspects and they found Gallagher. Police recalled seeing Gallagher near Mars' property not long before the murder. Inside Gallagher's pockets, they found items that appeared to be Mars, crumpled up pieces of newspaper that matched some found at Mars' home. Police arrested Gallagher on the spot. 
Uh, and Gallagher said, okay, yeah, he's dead, and I was there, but it wasn't me. Gallagher tried to blame it on the man he had been spotted with shortly before the murder. It was my partner, Snowflake. Which didn't go over well with authorities. They never ever found Snowflake, but he said it was Snowflake who did it. Mars' murder took place in a rural area called Skamania County, home to maybe a couple hundred people. Nearby Clark County had a population of several thousand, and it was much more equipped to conduct a murder trial. So they ended up approaching the district attorney in authorities in Clark County saying, will you try him for this murder? So they agreed. And, uh, and so they, they, they put him in the Clark County Jail. Were townspeople just incensed by this killing? Was there a vigilante sense of justice? The, the best reference for what was going on in town at the time, of course, is from the newspapers. And, and based on the newspapers, uh, there was a lot of public outrage. And some of that has to do with fear. What if Gallagher was telling the truth and his partner Snowflake is still running around ready to kill people? And that may have had something to do with Skamania County's authorities requesting Clark County to try the case as a change of venue, let tempers cool in Skamania County as well. Was that unique for a, a county to ask an, a neighboring county to handle a trial such as that? It, it was almost unheard of at the time for, for one county government to go to another and ask it for that kind of assistance built into Clark County agreeing to hold this trial. It was a capital trial, it was a murder trial, and the, the, the ultimate punishment could well have been public execution of the, of the, the defendant. And that is, that's, that's a huge commitment. A commitment Clark County was willing to make. Edward Gallagher, prepared to go on trial. Before Gallagher's trial began in the winter of 1890, he remained incarcerated inside the Clark County Courthouse. On a cold February day, the building caught on fire. Made of wood, it burned quickly. And so the, the guards did evacuate the prisoners, but they made a conscious choice because the, the imagine, you, you have to rush into this flaming building to, to get out these prisoners. You have to unlock the cell, and if they happen to be manacled, you have to, you know, you have to get them out. Very dangerous for the guards. So there were several prisoners there. So they actually took the prisoners, not who were closest to the door, but had the, were accused of the lightest sentences first. And because Gallagher was an accused murderer, they evacuated him last. Another one of those historic ironies that you say, you gotta be kidding. Gallagher amazingly survived the fire, but couldn't escape his fate. He went on trial for capital murder shortly after. During the proceedings, he pleaded insanity, but it only took a jury less than four hours to convict him. He was sentenced to execution by hanging. The way it worked in the late 1800s in the Northwest, if there was no state or federal penitentiary to conduct public executions, that responsibility fell to individual counties, 
Washington had only just become a state in 1889, the same year that Louis Marr was murdered. There wasn't a state penitentiary established yet, so Clark County had to handle the execution arrangements for Gallagher. Oftentimes, counties would build scaffolding in the attics of courthouses, where prisoners were hung from the highest point. And the way executioners were selected was quite arbitrary. Somebody would be picked or chosen or volunteer as a public executioner. In some places in the 1800s, they would actually kind of hold a lottery and people would volunteer to be the public executioner and then they would pick the name out of the hat and they would receive a fee also as a public executioner. In, in other cases, for instance, in the case of Edward Gallagher, uh, the sheriff, the county sheriff, became the public executioner as a special duty and he received $50 honorarium to actually be the one to uh, pull whatever lever it was that dropped Edward Gallagher through the trapdoor. That would have been about $1,500 by today's standards. Crews had to construct a gallows complete with scaffolding at the courthouse square, and they built a sort of stockade around it, about 50 feet wide by 80 feet long. The total cost of everything was said to top $225, a large sum at the time. So officials came up with a unique idea to help foot the bill. They didn't have a, a well-thought-out plan. So they said, let's make this a public execution. It's going to be outside. It's going to be sort of to the general public. So they ended up selling 200 tickets. And with the money from those 200 tickets, they built a scaffold with the 13 steps. The 200 people who bought tickets were allowed inside the perimeter of the stockade for what was advertised as a front row seat. Everyone else would be invited to gather outside. It seemed like officials were trying to make a point about crime and punishment. It was almost as if they wanted Gallagher's hanging to become a public spectacle some said it felt like a celebration of death. Thus the name, The Hanging Holiday. It was not, it was not a solemn occasion. It was, if you've ever seen movies where it's, it's a public holiday, that's exactly what it was. People brought their kids there and they had picnics waiting for it. And in, in some cases, um, reporters talk about parents were holding their children up so they could see over the stockade wall and watch it happen. One woman somehow managed to get a ticket and she got inside and she was selling popcorn. This seemed really indicative of, of public sentiment at the time. Gallagher was, to them, scourge of society and they wanted that nowhere in their town. Newspapers at the time had kind of a divided opinion. In, in, in part of the case, uh, there was overwhelmingly, yeah, this is, this is a morality lesson. This is what happens when you kill somebody. And, and we are kind of happy to see this, this mad dog killer executed for the good of society. On the other hand, there were other newspapers that were saying, no, no, he, he should be executed, but this is not this kind of public spectacle that we as civilized people should see. Mm. It's, it's disgraceful. There were two methods of hanging prisoners during this era. The first was haphazard and certainly not scientific. You build a scaffold with a trap door, you put the person on the trap door, you tie a rope around their neck, 
and the rope be kind of a random length. So you pull the trap door open and they fall. And if they don't fall long enough or hard enough, they will actually strangle. And that can take several minutes. The other way was referred to as the long drop. Where the executioner uh, looks at the person's height, their weight, and then they kind of guesstimate how much distance do they have to fall to build up inertia so that they're going to break their necks when they stop. This was the method officials elected to use for Gallagher. On the day of the execution, townspeople arrived and flashed their tickets to get a seat inside the stockade. They waited anxiously as quiet murmurs echoed through the gallows. The sheriff soon appeared with both hands on Gallagher. The pair walked up the 13 steps to the top of the scaffold. All the while, Gallagher yelled to the crowd something about a group of soldiers who were going to rescue him just in time to spare his life. But once they got to the top of the platform, Gallagher could see the noose awaiting him, and there were no signs of any soldiers. Gallagher panicked and tried to make a run for it. Uh, he finally realized that there, nobody's coming to rescue me. And so uh, he tried escaping, and the sheriff and all of his guards uh, had to wrestle him to the ground. And, and that went on for several minutes, and then they finally picked him up, and the sheriff uh, the sheriff actually told Gallagher, why don't you just take this like a man? And then they got him up the, up to, up the scaffolding and he tried breaking away again. And, uh, and he had, all of them were tired by this time, but they, it didn't take them quite as long to subdue him. Witnesses said Gallagher fought like a demon. It took seven men to subdue him. Ultimately, Gallagher's resistance would not be enough to change his impending doom. And he finally just gave up. And so they then just positioned him over the trap door, kind of held him in place from a distance. They put the noose around his neck and then the hood. And then the sheriff asked him one last time, did you kill Mr. Marr? And there was silence at first. And then the sheriff repeated the same question and Gallagher is supposed to have said, uh, none of your damn business. And it was shortly after that that they pulled the lever, pulled the key, opened the trap door, and Gallagher dropped to his death. Gallagher's neck broke immediately. Officials waited 11 minutes before allowing two doctors to examine the body, where they pronounced Gallagher dead. When they were trying to get his body down, they either purposely let go of the rope or the or they something went wrong but his body actually dropped and fell all the way to the ground he was not lowered down gently after the event's conclusion the crowd scattered but not before some took strands from the noose as souvenirs a local newspaper that covered the story decried the public nature of the hanging as a disgrace to the community, calling on the county never to hold a similar execution again. Again, I have to point out the people at the time were not complaining about execution being morally wrong. Their complaint was this should be a somber, uh, somber occasion that society has to 
has to kill to put down members of uh, members of society who are antisocial, who are a danger to the rest of the community. Uh, we just don't think it should be a party. And so there were newspaper articles and editorials afterward that I think within the, within this part of the region certainly impacted people. Uh, I think some of those people who were at the execution and they were caught up in it afterward had second thoughts. Gallagher may well have been mentally impaired, mentally ill, which doesn't mean he's not responsible for what happened, but in, in modern times, he would certainly have been evaluated and received different treatment. And in the aftermath of his execution, uh, it did change minds about how to execute condemned prisoners. Gallagher's body was placed in a cheap coffin and buried at Vancouver's Old City Cemetery in the Potter's Field. His gravesite contained no marble headstone. Instead, a small wooden marker with a plot number. For decades, Gallagher's grave remained like that, until one day, an anonymous citizen purchased the very headstone that exists today. On the next episode of Wicked West. They found bodies downstream. The family would go and no, it wasn't him. A popular mayor goes for a walk in 1920 and never returns. And then a hunter uh, found the mayor hanging from a tree by his handkerchief. There was much debate about whether he took his own life. He had made so many enemies. Or if someone killed him. So uh, I think he was taken there. Today, the mayor's ghost is said to haunt the very bridge he walked across to his doom. And they had seen a tall, slender figure walk across the bridge and it would disappear. None of us want to believe that we shut off completely when we die, that there's just nothing. That's next time on Wicked West. Special thanks to author and historian Jeff Davis for his research on Edward Gallagher. To learn more about Jeff's other work, you can visit his website, ghostsandcritters.com. Wicked West is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this series, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash wickedwest and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Ken McCormick and Nick Bieber. Digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Jennifer Woodruff, Randy Cobb, and Skylar Stever. Special thanks to KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. If you like this show, check out our other series, Should Be Alive, Urge to Kill, and The Yellow Car, available wherever you listen to podcasts.